0: Man, it is always good to be able to worship here with you guys. I got to tell you, in singing, I was belting it out like I was driving in the car by myself. Yeah, amen. We should sing like that. It's especially good to be able to worship on a day where we honor veterans whose service has helped ensure our ability to worship freely. I hope we never take that for granted. And though our country is more free to worship today, in part because of their service, you know, we still have difficulties praising God today. We still have difficulties worshiping. It's a difficult environment for us to actually worship in. Humanly speaking, we are dealing with the realities of pandemic and the aftermath of lockdowns and social distancing that have led to a significant increase of depression anxiety suicides other deaths of despair from a spiritual side we have attacks about our view of truth we have attacks whether or not we can even say something is true whether there is actual truth even out there we have attacks upon the image bearers of Christ preborn children postborn children we even have attacks in how we worship Can we worship? How many people can be in a building? Do they all have to wear masks? How far can they sit apart? Can they sing? Can they shake hands? People are longing for hope. Real hope. Authentic hope. You see, hope can't be abstract. It has to have power. It has to be real. So tonight, my intention is to give you hope. My intention is to remind you of real events that have real power and that will give you real hope. And that's where we turn to Titus. So I would invite you to turn to Titus in your Bibles. So the book of Titus is a book of Paul that was written to a young pastor named Titus. That's the name of the book. And he was kind of a traveling pastor. He was kind of, in some regards, he was a fix-it guy. He was a, kind of a church planner. And Paul sent him to the Isle of Crete to start a church. And he was, diff- he was ministering to a difficult people. We even have that today. To be called a Cretan is a pejorative. The Cretan people, if you look in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, look how they're described liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Interestingly enough, Paul goes, and this is true. And this is true. And then secondly, he was dealing with a very large number of Judaizers that were insubordinate. Look at verses 14 through 16. They were insubordinate, they were empty talkers, and they were deceivers. Titus was in a difficult city, Trying to set up a church with difficult opposition. So Paul writes the letter to encourage this young pastor to contend for the gospel in this difficult church plant. Now, Paul's actually going to start with hope. You see, in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about the hope of eternal life. And then he talks about hope again in chapter 2, verse 13. And then he talks about hope again in chapter 3, verse 7. He interweaves hope in there. Because in difficult times, we need hope. And Paul wanted to give Titus hope. But Paul was going to give him true hope. Paul was going to give him motivating hope. Paul was going to give him authentic hope. The hope of a sure future. The hope of eternal life. Back to chapter 1, Paul starts... With the hope of eternal life based on the promises of the Word of God. This is commonly known as the gift. Paul does this all the time. Paul starts with the gift before he gives the task. He starts with encouragement before he tells them the task that's before them. Paul's then going to spend the rest of the chapter giving Titus his task. First, he wants them to set up elders. Then... He's going to have to do some house cleaning. He's going to have to refute the false teachers that are around. Then he's going to have to rebuke the unruly. And then we go to chapter 2. And the people that are left, he's going to have to now train. You see, it's going to be difficult enough when you have to sit there and exhort and rebuke. That's going to cause conflict. That's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to do that. But Paul says, listen, you're going to have to do this because the people are this way. Then in chapter 2, he's saying, now we're going to have to train those that are left. Now you're going to have to train the church. And so in chapter 2, he exhorts Titus to train men and women, old and young, slave and free. He's going to have to train them how they're supposed to act. And then he comes to verse 11. You see, Paul's given Titus a difficult task and he's going to give him the motivation he's going to give him the hope he's going to give him the source of power how can i get this done you've put me in a difficult place and brothers and sisters we are in a difficult place as pastor brian said sunday we may not be in the most difficult place there are certainly countries many countries that have it much harder than we do but that doesn't mean it's easy so what do we do well we come to our passage and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this time that you have given me to bring your word. And Lord, I just pray that you will give me the words that I am to say. Give us hope. Give us joy. Give us peace, give us wisdom, give us courage, give us a love for you, Lord. I pray that that will come out tonight. I pray that we'll see this in this passage. pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So the question becomes, how do you serve God in a difficult time? How do you serve God in a difficult place? The answer is simple, but not easy. He says... The grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God is the subject of this whole statement that Paul is making verse 11 through 14. It's a common phrase that was used by Paul. He used it at least 10 times in the New Testament. And it refers to the salvific work of Jesus in salvation. Go to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4. Paul talking to the Corinthians says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The grace of God. The salvific work of Jesus. Flip over several chapters to, ver- to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 Paul, again, continuing, says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. You see, Paul was a rebel of God before. Paul hated God before. Paul was a murderer of the church before. And he says, by the grace of God, I am who I am, talking about the salvific work of God in his life that has changed him. The salvific work of Christ that gives us the ability to further the kingdom. Though Paul still had to do work. And what we'll see is it's actually the power of this grace in his life that causes Paul to work hard. The salvific work of Christ, the gospel, is the grace of God. Is it not the grace of God in your life? But the salvific work of Christ isn't just an idea. And that's what I want to show you tonight. It is real. It is reality. It's a tangible work that gives us tangible results because it has tangible power. In this passage, we will show these five realities. We will see that, number one, the salvific work of Christ was a real event. Number two, we will see it has real power. Number three, we will see it has a real effect. Number four, we will see it offers a real hope. Number five, it gives us a real identity. So back to Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. So the first thing that the grace of God has done, it it has appeared. And, And the meaning of this word is it actually happened. This was an event. The grace of God was something that happened in real life. It is an actuality. The word used here means an actual event, an appearing. It's pointing to the first advent. And we know this. It's not a simple idea. It's not a simple concept. It is something that happened in real life. Jesus came. Born in a manger. Mary, Joseph, angels, shepherds, wise men much later. Make sure your nativity is correct but it happened it really happened jesus walked on the earth he walked on actual ground in an actual place with actual people he died on an actual cross and he rose from an actual grave the death of christ is a historical event that was witnessed by many people it was written about in the four gospels it was referred to by many other in epistles And if that's not enough, it was also referred to by other atheist historians such as Tacitus, such as Josephus. But I want to be careful there because we don't need atheists to confirm facts for us. The Gospels are not stories. The Gospels are historical accounts of real events. I remember uh, a college pastor of mine saying that. Let's get away from saying it's just the story. Yes, it is a story. Yes, it is a narrative. But it's a historical narrative. It really happened. It's not just some illustrated book that we read to our children. Our salvation is rooted in a real event. And this is important. Because if it's not in a real event in the past, if the first advent wasn't a real event, we're going to see the second advent won't be a real event either. It has to be rooted in reality. But do we live like our salvation is based on a real event? Do we live like we had a real event in the past and we're going to have a real event in the future where we're going to stand before God and give an account for what we've done. And this real event had real power. So the second thing is the salvific work of Christ has real power. It says bringing salvation to all people. Now the word bringing here is such that it's a unique word. And it actually is more of an idiom that says saving power. It brought saving power here. The idea is that when the salvific worth of Christ appeared, it brought with it actual saving power that was available to all men. Again, the salvific worth of Christ was not a symbolic thing. It's not an abstract thing. It had a real event and it was real power that was brought with it. Jesus actually accomplished something on the cross that produced real power. This power is available to all people, though we know this power is not taken advantage of by all people. It could be available to all people, but it will be applied to the elect. When Jesus was born in a manger, they didn't realize the power that was there. When Jesus walked on the earth, they didn't understand the power that was there. When Jesus hung on the cross, they didn't understand the power that was there. Even after Jesus was risen from the dead and stories went around you you talk about the road to Emmaus they still refer to him as a prophet and Jesus had to come to those men on the road to Emmaus and say do you not understand and then showed them from Moses and the prophets who he was Jesus brought with him real power. They didn't understand. The, tur- the curtain torn in two. Darkness went over the earth. He still didn't understand. And we only have a glimpse right now, don't we? Sure, we understand the power of salvation in our own life. We understand the power of changing a reprobate, a rebel, into someone who loves God. We understand that in our own life, but we don't necessarily understand all the power. But one day, Brothers and sisters, we will see the power. One day, we'll see the power of Christ. One day, every knee will see the power of Christ and bow. And every tongue will know the power of Christ. And it will confess that he is Lord. So we have a real event that brings real power. And with that power brings real power. Change, Real effect. You see, power is no good if it does nothing. Right? If you say you have power to the house and you flick a light on and nothing happens, do you really have power there? Has it done anything? Real true power has an effect. It will change whatever it has power on. It will drive whatever it has power on. Verse 12. It is training us. The word used for training is paideia. It's a word that was usually reserved for training children. You see, back then, when you had freemen, you had children that had to learn how to think and act like a free person. So they would have tutors. And these tutors were doing more than just teaching you subjects like math and logic and philosophy. They would also teach you how you to act at certain events, certain formal things. They're going to teach you how to dress, how to speak. It is training you in not just a couple of subjects, but it's training you how to be a citizen in that culture. It's also used in Acts 7.22. Moses was instructed in the education and culture common to the Egyptians. Paul talks in Acts two three. He says that he was trained in the culture of being a Pharisee by none other than the highly respected Gamaliel. He was trained in how to do that. Go to Ephesians 6. Here's another use. Paul, in talking to different groups of people, he just gets done with a verse that, of course, I had my children memorize. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and you will last long in the land. And then we get to verse 4. I didn't have him memorize this. Not yet. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the What? Discipline, the padea, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, the job of a godly father is to bring up his children in the culture of Christianity. His job is to teach his children how to be citizens of God's kingdom. His job is to raise children that have learned how to be free from sin and bondage to sin. And to worship God. How do they act? How do they think? How do they dress? How do they talk? What do they learn? You see, fathers, that's our job. We have to train. You see, the reason that Titus could actually train the people that he was told to train in verses 1 through 10 is because the gospel, the salvific work of Christ, gives him the power with an effect that people's hearts will be changed and that trains them. This word has another use. It's also used for discipline or punishment. In Luke 23, 16, Jesus was whipped. And that's the word there. Go to Hebrews 12. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves." For they, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. There's another use of paideia, and that is discipline. It is, so what we have here is a training, but not just a training in giving education. We're not just transferring information to somebody. No, we're training and we're disciplining to make sure that information is being worked out. The salvific work of God has a real effect on a person in conforming them to the image of Christ. And that's why Titus can do the work Paul told him to do. Paul gave Titus the task of training because the grace of God has the real effect of conforming their hearts. It educates us in how we are to act now, and it disciplines us when we stray as a sign of love. And this is accomplished not in an abstract way. Nope. This is a real way, a personal way. In the person of the Holy Spirit, He is the one who trains us. He is the one who indwells us. He is the one that disciplines us. He is the one that informs us. He is the trainer, the teacher that brings about our progressive sanctification. But what does the Holy Spirit train us to do? Well, we move on. It says to renounce. Back to Titus 2. We renounce ungodliness and we renounce worldly passions and instead be self controlled and upright. So, what's ungodliness? Well, ungodliness is a general reverence for any type of spiritual thing. It is basically acting like there is no God. This is like the materialist in the world today that thinks everything has to be materialized. There is no such thing as spiritual. You act as though this is it. There's no spiritual realities. The idea is that we reject this way of thinking once and for all. We reject this way of living once and for all. Because our worldview will inform the way we think about issues. And the way we think about issues informs how we act in response. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is our worldview? We have to ask ourselves, do we act in a way where we consider God? Do we act in a way where we pretend, not pretend, but, well, pretend that God's not there? Or do we act in a way where we show that God is there? Do we act in ungodliness? Or do we act as God is there and he has rules for us? He has a way of living for us. Do you find that the way you think about culture or politics is it informed by news media, by the internet, by Facebook, by Twitter, by parler or is it informed by scripture, by God? We must learn to reject the ideas, the patterns of speech, and the practices that don't have God as that consideration. Because right now, I can tell you, we are in a fight for truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. We are in a fight for truth because they hate God. And we are in a fight to even know if truth exists. And brothers and sisters, we are going to have to insist on truth every time. We're going to have to insist that we do things the way the Scripture says. We're going to have to insist on things like saying, well, we have to have two and three witnesses in order for us to bring a charge. We're going to have to insist on things like, well, it seems right to a man when the first person comes, but then we cross-examine. We're going to insist on that we have to hear a whole matter out before we make a decision. We're going to have to insist on things like evidence and things that correspond with reality. And this, these are the types of things that we thought we'd never have to do. But now we're going to have to do them. We have to act in a way that takes into account God as the preeminent thing that we consider. Next thing we have to put away is worldly desires. And this is the desiring of something in an inordinate manner. right? So there's, there's two parts to this. The first part we'll talk about is desires and desires in itself is not a bad thing. The word here though is more of a like we said an inordinate thing you want it really bad. And that's okay. Paul says that the that that Christ compels him pushes him. He desires that. To have a desire, to have a hard desire is not a bad thing. The thing that makes it bad here, the thing that makes it evil here, the thing that makes it, that Paul says, put it away, is the fact that it's worldly. What gives the desire its evil bend is that it's a worldly desire. It's not that you just have a mild affinity for the things, but rather you find that the things that drive you in this life are things not of God, but rather of the world. You seek after worldly lust instead of godly love. Your drive for advancing your status is greater than your desire to advance the kingdom of God. Anything that is worldly, anything that puts the world before God is something that we should put away. So how are we supposed to live then? I love Paul, and I'll just put a... Just a little thing in here for, for taking Greek, if you ever can. It's, it's a hard task, but man, there's things that, that you just see in the Scripture that just open up. If you ever can, can take a Greek class, and we have one at CTS here, do so. I say that because right here, the next thing he says is instead we be self-controlled. And the thing that Paul actually does is he plays pairs. So, he pairs this actually against this worldly desire. He pairs this self control against this passion, this passionate living for worldly things. And then he's going to pair upright against godlessness or ungodliness. And you see that in the Greek, and that's why I put that caveat in there. All right, commercial over. So, self control. So as opposed to being a person that is ruled by their passions, we are to be people who are self-controlled. And specifically, like I said, Paul's pairing this against worldly desires. So in context, it means it's not just an arbitrary self-denial. This is actually us putting away those, those things of worldly desires, and our self-control is then controlling those, putting those down, and instead living for God. Self-control is so important to Paul. In fact, if you go up to verses 1 through 10, you'll see that self-control is one of the words, or at least one of the words in there has something to do with self-control when Paul talks to every uh, group of people that he addresses. Verse 2 is to older men. Verse 3 is to older women. Verse 5, he challenges younger women. Verse 6, he challenges younger men. And verse 9, he challenges slaves. All in some way, something that has to do with self control. Self control is so important. Do we control those things in our life? Do we give those to God? Do we let the Spirit of God, the power that is there, come into our life and take those desires away, let those desires be controlled, and instead seek for God? Next upright. We are to be upright. The effect that the power of God has on us is upright. Also, also, some virgins may have justly. One can one person, a person who acts in an upright way also acts in a way that is just. And in fact, justice and righteousness are related here. The righteousness that is heavenly is put against those people who act in an ungodly way. You see, when you have justice that is based on God, you're not going to act in an ungodly way because you're going to acknowledge that God is there. Justice is based upon the character of God. Justice is based upon God's righteousness that's what he's getting at here we aren't to find our definition of living justly in the world but rather we are to find it in the righteous standards of God and so when somebody says to you you should live this way or you should look at this issue in this way you need to get in the habit of saying by what standard by what standard am I going to measure whether or not I am living in a just way What's your standard? How do you determine if you're living uprightly? You see, here, when when Paul's talking to Titus here, he uses this word because he knows that it has to do with righteousness and that it has to do with God's righteousness. And to live in an upright way is related to the very character of God, which is righteousness. And so if we're going to act in an upright way, we have to use a standard. And the standard that we're going to have is the revealed word of God. God. So if we're going to act in a just way, our standard has to be the word of God. So when somebody tells you you need to act in a certain way or you need to think about it in a certain way or you need to look at these people in a certain way, we need to say by what standard? Who says? Who's the boss? Who's the standard? It's God. You see, the justice that the world is offering us right now stands opposed to the justice of God. We must choose wisely. We must choose what our standard's going to be. And you you do all this in this present age. You see, this is another form of him showing the reality of this. This isn't something that we do later on. This isn't something that's just up in the air. No, what does he say in this present age? Now. Now. You live in a way that is upright. You live in a way that considers God. Now, currently, the salvific work of Christ has an effect on the way a person conducts themselves currently. The salvific work of Christ is currently teaching us and training us and discipling us to be more God-centered and more righteous in our behavior. You see, this is the marriage between Faith and works. What's going to happen is this real event, right? Jesus coming down and paying for our sins. Brings with it power. This power has a result. This power he applies to his elect. We get that power. We have nothing to do with that power coming to us. That is God's. But it causes something. It causes us to live for him. Let me show you this. Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians 2. Another verse I've had my children memorize. Here we see this grace. Here we see how grace, faith, and works all go together in a non-heretical way. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. There we go. Here's the grace of God. Here's the salvific worth of Christ. This is is how we've been saved. You've been saved through faith, right? The conduit comes through faith. And this is not of your own, right? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. He's making this clear. Your works had nothing to do with your salvation so that no one may boast. But, verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So here we go. The power of God, the salvific work of Christ, comes upon us, and it causes us to do what? It causes us to do good works. And look at this. It was for his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only did God elect you, he created your, your good works that you should do beforehand. That's how it's done. The power of God comes upon us and saves us and changes us. It has a real effect upon us. And it causes us to want to live for him. That's why Titus could do the things that Paul told him to do because God is the one who has the power in it. And we can live for Christ because we have that power in us. And because we have that, it offers us a real hope. Verse 14. Waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting. The way this verb is written, it's contemporaneous, meaning happening at the same time. So here we go. We've been saved by the power of God. A real event with real power, with a real effect on our, our life. And while we are having that effect on it, at the same time, we know of the hope. We know of the hope that that is for us. We are waiting. While we are doing the work of God and living uprightly, at the same time, we are looking forward to our future hope, our blessed hope. We are looking forward to the transcendent privileges that have been promised to us, 1 Timothy 1.11 tells us what those are. And what it actually says is God himself is the blessing that is described. 1 Timothy 6.15, again, God describes himself as the embodiment of this blessing. You see, we don't just wait for some abstract thing. We wait for God. We wait for a real person. We look forward to the one who not only represents our hope, but the one who defines our hope, the one who embodies our hope. And I want you to look at this verse because we're going to see that Jesus is our hope. Let me show you. Jesus will come again in great glory as our triumphant Savior in hope. Why? Because he says that Jesus is our Savior and our God. And yes, the structure here, means that Jesus is both our Savior and our God. And when Jesus comes back, his glory will be great. It'll be great both in preeminence, it'll be great in magnitude. Jesus, when Jesus comes again, it will not be like the first advent. No. The God of angel armies is coming back with King of Kings, with a sword in his mouth ready to defeat the foes. The one everyone was looking for at the first advent, he's coming the second advent. My friends, do you, do you hope for Jesus? Do you just look forward to a day in heaven where your body isn't sick anymore, your joints don't hurt anymore, you get to walk wherever, everything's great or do you look forward to Jesus do you look forward to being with Jesus heaven is heaven because Jesus is there do you spend time meditating on that future Revelation's a great book guys read it, be encouraged by it You don't have to figure out whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, pan-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, all-trib, no-trib. Do this. Read it and see the triumph of Jesus in it. Now, yes, do we get theology from Revelation? I'm not telling you to discard it. But people stay away from it because they're afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. See the hope that is in it. See the hope that is in that book. You see, we're worried about two months from now, four years from now, and yet we should be focused when Jesus comes back, when we get to be with him. That's our hope. Our hope is an abstract. Our hope is a person. Our hope is Jesus. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, is our hope. The blessed hope is not abstract. It is the person. And Paul refers to another event here called the second advent. And just like the first advent was a real historical event, the second advent will also be a real historical event. In fact, the way the structure plays here with the words, the way Paul plays in this word, he actually almost acts as if the second advent is like the first advent in that it's already happened. And he doesn't mean that it's already happened and we missed it. What it's trying to say is, consider it done. It's as good as done. It's as good as happened. It is that sure. See, some of us are hoping that the election goes our way. Some of us are hoping that somehow some of these states flip and we can have the president that we want. But we're not sure. It seems like a long shot. I'm hoping... My football team will win a game this year. But I don't know. That's not the same as right here. This, brothers and sisters, is looking forward to something sure. Looking forward to something sure. And lastly, the salvific work of Christ offers a real identity. Verse 14 Christ gave himself up for us. Christ gave himself up for us. Have you ever considered that? While his crucifixion and resurrection are clearly in mind here, it also talks about the whole life of Christ, the whole Advent. Turn with me real quick to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Sometimes I think we we narrow down what Christ did to just Passion Week. And he did more than that. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though uh, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing that to, to be grasped, something to hold on to. But rather, he emptied himself, right? He, he, he put on the form of man by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He sacrificed by just coming to this earth. This earth that was depraved, this earth that was not what he intended that we messed up. He came to this earth to live when he could have been staying in heaven. He said, "No. I'm not going to just keep grasping at heaven and not do the will of God, the will that we came up with. No, I'm going to do this plan." And he came down and he lived as a nobody. For 30 years, he walked this earth. And then for three years, he walked, telling everyone who he was, and not many believed him, or most hated him for it. And then they yelled, crucify him. And then, what we're thinking, he died on the cross. Yes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Do not limit the sacrifice of Christ strictly to the cross. Have a fuller view of what Christ has done for you. Day in, day out, 33 years living here. He did it for us. True enough, like it says, to the glory of God. He did it for God's glory, as all things are for God's glory. But we are the beneficiaries. And what was this purpose? The purpose of this life. Back to Titus 2. This purpose was redemption and purification of his own people. Look how Christians are described here. We are the us who are redeemed from lawless deeds. We are a purified and chosen people. We are those eager for good works. See, Jesus sacrificed himself for us so that he could pay the penalty for our lawless deeds, purify us so that we could be holy as God is holy and make a people of us. You see, this is the essence of Colossians 3. He made a people of us And it's a preeminent identity that we now have. Go to Colossians 3. We'll do Colossians 3 and then we'll look at Galatians. In Colossians 3, Paul is talking about all the lawless deeds that people are doing. You start at verse 5. Colossians 3. Paul talks about these lawless deeds. And he's going to talk about how you should put them to death. And he talks about this from verse 5 to verse 10 and then he wraps it up in verse 10 talking about the new and the old self. Right? And isn't this the echo? Isn't this what we just had? Put on, put off. Put on ungodliness. Put on these passions. I'm sorry, put off those. Put off ungodliness. Put off these passions. Put on uprightness. And then in verse 11, Paul says here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, the point is not that they've lost their identity and who they were. Paul knew the difference between a guy and a girl, unlike people today. Rather, that now Jesus made himself a new people with a primary identity as Christians. We care first about our identity in Christ before we care about any other identity that we may have, whether it be gender, ethnicity, nationality, or culture. The same thing is also in Galatians 3. You don't have to turn there, but it's the same thing. He starts in verse 23, saying we were imprisoned by our lawlessness until Christ redeemed us, and he gave us a new identity. And then he says in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave or free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Our primary identity is no longer our nationality, our social standing, our gender, but rather our primary identity, which we have, is in Christ. This means that the way that we talk about people who are Christians is through the identity of Christ. Our primary, our preeminent way that we relate to other people is in Christ. Christians are a people. They are God's people. They are Jesus' people that are redeemed, purified. When you come to church, you should be able to look around and say, you know what, these are my people. No matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, Our identity in Christ supersedes our gender, supersedes our melanin count, or our national origin. And yet we don't ignore the other identities and differences or challenges or injustices that may occur because they also exist. We use our primary identity then to form our to inform our other identities of how we should relate to each other. This means we use the Bible to learn how we relate and interact as a people. We believe in complementarianism not because we believe in the patriarchy. We believe it because of what Christ has done, because we are informed by the Bible how we are to interact. We recognize the different identities that God has determined and the different roles that God has given to those identities. This is not so we can abuse our role, especially as men. In fact, we should stress the importance of a servant leader that is taught in the Bible. If we see injustice done to our people that are also in the black and brown community, we don't cry for justice because we are trying to get rid of our whiteness. But rather, we cry for justice because our new identity in Christ demands justice as defined in the Bible. And so we link arms. We link arms with other, our people. And we stand for biblical justice. The American church has had a terrible history of failing at this. Even blocking access to seminaries and church buildings and the sacraments just because of the skin color of somebody. And yet today the church is also in danger of driving to the other side of the ditch by applying the world standards of justice, as seen through things like critical theory, neo Marxism, postmodernism, godless ideologies. We need to learn to see others through the lens of the grace of God because He's purified and redeemed a people for Himself, and He gets to decide how they are treated. We have to learn how to function as this people. We have to learn how to reconcile as God's people. We have to learn how to support each other as God's people because one day we may have to learn how to survive in this culture with only having others that are God's people. May we learn now how to exist and forgive and grow and function and support and stimulate God's people to love and good works because we are a people bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. And so tonight, I offer you the hope of Jesus and his vivific work. I offer you a real hope based on a real event with real power to effect a real change, pointing to a real future hope and a current real people to identify with. Remember, Titus had a tough task ahead of him, and he had to put elders with him. And in one sense, Paul's saying, listen, you have your people with you to help you with that task. But let me tell you, you can only have this hope if you've experienced God's grace. This only applies to you if you have experienced the power of Jesus' salvific work. And if you haven't done this, I beg you tonight do that. Come to Jesus. Stop being a rebel. Stop being a rebel without hope. I see these people in the hospital all the time. People without hope. Stop. Don't be that person. Have a hope, a real hope. Come to Jesus as your Savior. Come to Jesus as your Lord. Take advantage of the grace of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for everything you've given to us. Lord, we thank you that it is a reality. It is something that's really real. It is based on reality. It has real power, real hope. May we be people who act in a way that the gospel is real to us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.